All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. The era of classic Hollywood has typically encompassed films from the 1910s to the 1960s. As we move farther from these years and add on the subsequent great films that would follow, the term classic Hollywood changes. It can now include many films from my childhood and beyond because we are seeing the landscape of cinema change rapidly. As far as Best Picture winners, it is really a much smaller group than expected when it comes to inner circle or popular classic Hollywood films that actually won the top prize. This builds on the main question of this podcast. What makes a Best Picture film the Best Picture? Box office glamour is certainly up there, but it's also the story, a narrative that is entertaining and brings you deep into its world and is a common thread of the list of classic Hollywood Best Picture winners. So when we look at iconic films that have won Best Picture, you know, as I said, it's a very small group, and I'll read it off really quickly. It's And this is what I guess I deemed it. You know, This is my list of what I think is iconic classic films that won. Best Picture, and so that includes Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Ben-Hur, West Side Story, Lawrence of Arabia, The Sound of Music, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, Rocky, Schindler's List, Forrest Gump, Titanic, and Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And that one came out in 2003, so that's why you know we're saying that the list is, is ever-expanding, because as the years go on, we add on these, what you know, younger generations are going to call old Hollywood but to us at our age, aren't old Hollywood. So, John, when you think of classic Hollywood and, and specifically those films that have won Best Picture, is there a common thing that stands out to you about them? Is there something that you gravitate towards to or that maybe the audience gravitates towards to when you see those films? I always think a lot of the times is a romantic subplot or at least the romance kind of being central or integral to the story. I mean... You can look at Gone with the Wind and Casablanca, West Side Story, obviously, and The Sound of Music. A lot of them are like love stories that are kind of fueled around another genre, like Rocky of a sports movie, but that's really just a love story. Forrest Gump, again, that's kind of like a biopic about someone who doesn't really exist, but really it's a love story. Titanic, historical event, it's really a love story. Same with Gone with the Wind as well. It's it's really just a story wrapped around a woman trying to find herself, but a love story between her and another man. So I always thought about that. You've seen like iconic images on the poster of like a man and a woman coming together uh, about to embrace that kiss like we see in Casablanca's poster, Gone with the Wind's poster, um, with West Side Story as well. So that always comes to commonality with me as well. I mean, it's funny reading this list here just because I think about modern Oscars as well and how we've had the dips and ups and downs with box office where the box office winner and head of the box office is usually no longer the case of being in the front lead or even sometimes being nominated for best picture. So I know in the nineties we saw like that indie kind of movement where so many indie films were so popular and they were being nominated and even winning, but it's kind of, it's, I feel like it's ebb and flowed a little bit, but when we think of these classic films, I feel like they're all in very much the top one to maybe three in the box office of that year. So do you think there's like a, is that still something that we can like address them together with box office and being like a classic film moving forward? I know it's hard to say now with like the past five years or even 10 years, but what do you think about that? I think it's like a hard thing to judge because 
because of like inflation and and the way and especially ticket prices are just through the roof so that you're going to get you know those marvel movies superhero movies the big action movies are going to top the box office so we have lost that that what would be i guess a classic film also being a top box office hit we've lost a little bit of that but it's always been there and it's something that is certainly interesting to track through time uh just one because the numbers are ever changing you can clearly see where the number changes and and it also makes you kind of amazed about how much money these films did take in you know for you know a movie like the sound of music was the number one in the box office and it took 72 million home still a lot of money but then you look at titanic in 97 and that took home almost two billion dollars home so it's like it's one of those weird things that i think that now we're entering to which is like people wanted people who love big box office movies wish that oscars would recognize them then also there are people who are big oscar fans that are like don't recognize those movies because they're only money grabbers and when i look at that list of the classic movies that have won best picture you know I don't. I would hate to think of them as just money grabbers because they really pull at my interest and my intrigue, and I just would hate to think of it as just like a money grabber. It's more than just that because it's a compliment to you know the art form of filmmaking. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, having a film that's universally praised that people want to see it, let alone see it over and over and over again, raising that box office, that's a huge feat. I mean, you all you want someone to see your film as much as possible. You want as much as the world to see your film as possible. But honestly, seeing this list just kind of makes me sad. Um, at the current state of the box office now, how just awful it's been due to COVID and, and other elements, people not wanting to go out, people not wanting to leave their home at all because it's easy and accessible to see films directly via streaming. So, I mean, I'm looking at this list and I, don't, I just don't think we're ever going to see a film like Forrest Gump, Schindler's List, Rocky, even The Godfather and obviously going back, Sound of Music and West Side Story, I don't think we're going to ever see a time where like that kind of film is going to be in the top five, let alone even top ten maybe. I just think it's so dominated by intellectual properties and brands. And I love comic book movies, but it just sucks that like that we're losing the cinematic experience of like these smaller films and films that people just aren't really going to see at all, let alone in theaters. So that kind of bums me out kind of seeing this list because I, there's so many films in here that I just don't think will ever be even seen in theaters or films like them that are made today. So yeah, it's, it's well, kind of left me in uh, struggling with it. Well, it's interesting. You, you make that point and um, because there have been right now 93 movies to win best picture and I listed off 10 of them. So you still have another 80 films that aren't the iconic films that are, I don't I want to call them all indies, but they're just like smaller, you know, studio films or just smaller films that aren't the big box office successes, but they also don't get recognized as classic Hollywood films, even though they win best pictures. So it's like a thing that just goes back and forth in, in just my own head of how we should appreciate these films. And, I just think we should appreciate all films for what they are, except for a select few. You know, those few that are out there <laughs> that we've talked about in the we've... past 15 movies. Yeah. yeah. But regardless is I, it's very interesting to talk about classic Hollywood and then also talk about best picture winners because they don't actually match up, but we bring it up today because we're talking about Casablanca, which is probably the most recognizable classic Hollywood film that I could think of. I mean, I don't. Th I know Gone with the Wind is very popular, 
But I think Casablanca is the classic Hollywood film. So, John, is Casablanca worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1943? Casablanca, a cynical American cafe owner, struggles to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband escaped the Nazis in French Morocco. In December 1941, American Rick Blaine owns a nightclub and gambling den in Casablanca. Rick's Café American attracts a mixed clientele including Vichy, French, and German officials, refugees desperate to reach the neutral United States, and those who prey on them. Although Rick professes to be neutral in all matters, he ran guns to Ethiopia during the Second Italo-Ethiopian War and fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. Petty crook Ugart boasts to Rick of letters of transit obtained by murdering two German couriers. The papers allow the bearers to travel freely around German-occupied Europe and to neutral Portugal. They are priceless to the refugees stranded in Casablanca. Ugart plans to sell them at the club and persuades Rick to hold them. Before he can meet his contact, Ugart is arrested by the local police under the command of Captain Luis Renault, the unabashedly corrupt prefect of police. Ugart dies in custody without revealing that he entrusted the letters to Rick. Then, the reason for Rick's cynical nature, former lover, Ilsa Lund, enters his establishment. Spotting Rick's friend and house pianist, Sam, Elsa asks him to play as time goes by. Rick storms over, furious that Sam dissipated his order to never perform that song, and is stunned to see Elsa. She's accompanied by her husband, Victor Laszlo, a renowned fugitive Czech resistant leader. They need the letters to escape to America to continue his work. Major Strasser has come to Casablanca to thwart him, though. When Lazo makes inquiries, Ferrari, an underworld figure and Rick's friendly business rival, divulges his suspicion that Rick has the letters. Privately, Rick refuses to sell at any price, telling Laszlo to ask his wife the reason. They are interrupted when Strasser leads a group of officers in singing The Watch on the Rhine. Laszlo orders the house band to play La Marseille. When the band looks at Rick, he nods his head. Lazo starts singing alone at first, then the patriotic fever grips the crowd and everyone joins in, drowning out the Germans. Strasser demands Renault close the club, which he does on the pretext of suddenly discovering there's a gambling on the premises. Elsa confronts Rick in the deserted cafe. When he refuses to give her the letters, she threatens him with a gun, but then confesses that she still loves him. She explains that when they met and fell in love in Paris in 1940, she believed her husband had been killed attempting to escape from a concentration camp. While preparing to flee with Rick from the city during the Battle of France, she learned Laszlo was alive and in hiding. She left Rick without explanation to nurse her sick husband. Rick's bitterness dissolves. He agrees to help, letting her believe she will stay with him when Laszlo leaves. When Laszlo unexpectedly shows up, having narrowly escaped a police raid on a resistance meeting, Rick has waiter Carl spirit Elsa away. Laszlo, aware of Rick's love for Elsa, tries to persuade him to use the letters to take her to safety. When the police arrest Laszlo on a trumped-up charge, Rick persuades Renault to release him by promising to set him for a much more serious crime, possessions of the letters. 
To allay Renault's suspicions, Rick explains that he and Elsa will be leaving for America. When Renault tries to arrest Laszlo as arranged, Rick forces him at gunpoint to assist in their escape. At the last moment, Rick makes Elsa board the plane to Lisbon with Laszlo, telling her that she would regret it. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. Strasser, tipped off by Renault, drives up alone. Rick shoots him when he tries to intervene. As the police arrive, Renault pauses, then orders them to round up the usual suspects. He suggests to Rick that they join the Free French in Brazzaville. As they walk away into the fog, Rick says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Casablanca starred Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, Ingrid Bergman as Elsa Lund, Paul Henreid as Victor Laszlo, Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault, Conrad Veidt as Major Henrique Strasser, Sidney Greenstreet as Signor Ferrari, Peter Laurie as Ugarte, and Dooley Wilson as Sam. Casablanca was directed by Michael Curtis. Screenplay by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, Howard Koch, based on the play by Marie Burnett and Joan Allison, and uncredited writer Casey Robinson. Casablanca was produced by Hal B. Wallace and executive produced by Jack L. Warner. Music by Max Steiner. Cinematography by Arthur Edison. Film editing by Owen Marks. Art direction by Carl Jules Wall. Set direction by George James Hopkins. And costume design by Ori Kelly. Well, John, here's to looking at you, kid. Uh, whatever that means. Do you know what that means? Because we kind of oh, talked. you want to jump off like Yeah, that? I okay. kind of want to jump off because it was said four times in the film. It's one of the most famous lines of the entire film. And I still don't get what that line is supposed to mean. Here's looking at you, kid. Grammatically makes no sense. What is he looking at and what what's here too? Like I read that it was a first heard or seen in like um I think it was it might have been like a Broadway show in the thirties or something like that. Or maybe it was a film. But yeah, it doesn't really make sense in terms of like gr- grammar wise, but to me it's just like you're what's life is like you are what makes life worth living right like my life is amazing like let's cheers to just you being in my life essentially and that's the way i've always taken it and it seems to be the case like he can't really express himself in the way he wants to which is like kissing taking her marrying her like being with her forever so it's but he says that to her in paris he does but there's almost a sense that like they know this can't last i mean with the war going on around them plus then what happens with her leaving but it kind of adds to that though as well because they're kind of separated and he's saying that, like she's kind of what makes life great she he she is saying that she is what you know makes living possible for him essentially i mean that's the way i've taken mm-hmm. it how about you no i well i've just been stuck on the whole line itself that it's hard for me to like interpret it more and that's honestly one of the, the reason why i brought it up so quickly because it's like one of the two things in the movie that i just like didn't like or just didn't get 
Oh, you didn't like it, really? Oh, yeah. I just think it's like a weird line. I I never really like here's looking at you, kid, because I I get it as like a cheering, like like cheers, like here's to looking at you, like okay, a little creepy that you just want to look at her. But then he says it a few more times in, and he says at the end when they're not cheering, and it's just like here's to looking at you, kid, as they're about to leave, and he's like. What, what, what are we cheering about? We're supposed to be sad. <laughs> I'm like crying at the end of this because like they're not going to be together. Yeah. And uh, so it's just like one of the something I really just wanted to ask right off the top is like, what what does that mean? <laughs> Sometimes that's what makes lines so memorable, though, that the fact that they're not they don't make sense. Like I'm thinking for I don't this is not similar at all in terms of movies, but the big Lebowski and how many like quotable <laughs> funny lines are in that movie. And they just don't make sense. Like the dude abides like all these different lines that he reads off. Like, why is he called the dude? Like, cause he's the dude. He's just the dude. Like, it's just like something you have to accept. It's like their vernacular and what makes their relationship kind of like unique and cute. And I think that's why people really love this movie. It makes it a classic film though, is that there's so many memorable lines and, the script is just so witty and just, you know, right off the cuff that it feels so organic and memorable in that way. So, th- so then now that enters the next question I have, and we've sort of talked about this before is because it's such a good story and such a good script. Is it the script that's really good or is it the actor's performance of that script? That's really good. Or is it the direction of the script? That's really good. Or is it just a mixture of all three? I mean, I would say it's the mixture of all yeah. three. I think you can have a bad script and, you know, have better actors improve upon that with like the way they're pacing their lines, the way they're acting and they're blocking out the scene. But then you can also have like the opposite, a really good script that's just ruined by a bad performance. And that probably is a lot of the times for bad performances if it's like a major motion picture. Um, but yeah, and then it's also direction because like I was talking about with the acting and the blocking taking pauses like that's not always directly from the actor that could be kind of given and enhanced and adjusted by the director so i'm assuming it's a mixture between all three but this screenplay is voted as one of like the best screenplays of all time i think it's like pretty phenomenal in terms of the way it hits like every character's kind of themes and arcs and then we have like a really compelling story i saw you mentioned like the MacGuffin being like the first time we see that really listed or seen really in one of these films so yeah, I think it's just a, a phenomenal screenplay. What do you think about that question? Yeah, I I think it's actually for the, I think it can vary from uh film to film and situation to situation. I actually think that the screenplay in this is the strongest part about the whole thing. Um I just think that every word is so meticulous that it's just so well crafted. And then upon reading some research about the film and and knowing some of the background, it seemed very odd to have Humphrey Bogart being this romantic lead and then him and Ingrid Bergman, they like, they didn't hate each other. They just didn't really have a good friendship off the screen. So it makes it some of them. When you watch it again, you see some of these scenes, you're like, wait, they're not in love. And it just like, doesn't seem genuine because you know that they weren't like that off screen, even though I know that they're actors, but then I still have this like expectation that they're going to be in love, like offset and that they're at least friendly to each other offset. But from reading about it, it seemed like they just, didn't care about the other person and not in a bad way. They're just like, yeah, you just, you're there and that's part of the job. And, and also seemed like kind of the MO for the whole film was just that this is just a job. And we're just going to get it done. And no one thought that it was going to be as good. And it's so funny because so many of these movies that we've talked about, it seems like no one ever thought that, it, Oh, it's going to amount to like, no one ever thought it was going to be a best picture winner, but then it just end up does becoming that. So it's very interesting and very intriguing. 
And talking about the script, even just starting out, I actually think the biggest thing to talk about is the subtext of the film and the subtext of the script. It just being a big allegory for America's, uh, I guess, not influence, but involvement or budding involvement in World War II. I mean, that's what this whole screenplay and movies about is America and America entering the war and into this global crisis of and foreign policy and, and, and finally getting involved on the right side of history uh, to fight against Nazis. It's actually really interesting. I think this film is like just as relatable as ever because when we get down to it, it's, I mean, it's really about Rick. Like the whole movie is about Rick as much as you want to say that it's about their love story. It's really just about Rick trying to become a better person, trying to like actually stand by his allegiances and, and make a decision that's not just good for him, but good for, I mean, really the world, if we're looking at it this way. I mean, this film takes place in such a condensed and narrowed down setting, but it's about something so much bigger than just the setting. It's about so much, something so much bigger than just these characters. And I think that's, really relatable at the time for World War II. I mean, we just talked about how propaganda films are kind of like fueled. And in our last podcast, if you haven't listened to, we really hated the last film, which was a propagandist film called Mrs. Miniver that it just had very clunky storytelling where it was very clear that it felt rushed and it didn't really feel like a complete story. And it was really just there to push a narrative. And that's fine. It, it was kind of necessary for the time, but I think Casablanca and the reason why it stands out as a classic film is because it does both. It has that kind of narrative that it pushes. It has really engaging story and characters, but it's also kind of declaring that you as a viewer in World War II in 1942 and 43 that you can't really be neutral. You can't stop. You can't just not be involved in this war, even if you're at home not fighting with our, our men and our women that are on the front lines, you can't be neutral. You need to pick a side. You need to show your allegiances and that as a communal experience. And if we do that all individually, we will become a greater whole and affect the world and affect change. So it's super, super powerful uh, of a storytelling device that we can get that out of this like drunk babbling man who's just <laughs> like trying to like have sex with this woman which is really like the plot if you reduce it and boil it down it's just a drunk trying to like not drink and uh sleep with his old love who's he's still passionately in love with so yeah it's super super powerful yeah it, it it's incredibly powerful and i think that when when I I didn't get the sense that it was such a big allegory as much when after the fact and and reading and listening to other people's analysis of of the film it's it's pretty obvious when you do put that lens over it that Rick is America and that he has to decide is is he gonna help uh, is he gonna help Elsa and get away and and kind of be involved in this or is he gonna just not do anything and, and just let things go by and. Um, I think it's it's a very poignant thing at, at Americans. It came out the right time coming. It was released, I think, at a very limited time uh, at the end of 42. But then it was released in 43 when America was like really starting to get involved. And there was, um, you know, there was battles happening in North Africa. So Casablanca was in the news. And so it just it was kind of like a perfect storm for Warner Brothers to capitalize on the film while the war is going on, which is like a little cynical if you think about it. But it it works and it's a really interesting, uh, again, interesting lens to put onto it. And what it does, though, it creates all these other deeper human connections in the film because then you learn about the, a lot of the background actors and 
and extras and supporting cast were from Europe and they were refugees and they were just trying to get out of Europe as World War II was starting or as it already started and they had no more home. So it creates some of the more memorable scenes that much more powerful and specifically the La Marseille scene wherein Victor Lazo leads the whole cafe and singing uh, the French anthem while the Nazis are trying to sing the Nazi anthem. Uh, so it just, it, it creates more of that, that, that deeper human connection and emotion. And uh, it, it's, it's certainly fascinating. Um, I don't know if you had any feelings about that scene other than just like, Oh, that's a very cool, interesting scene. And, and it really has that simple good versus evil uh, battle happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really great. And it's really subtle, which I think this film has a lot of subtlety to it. And it's not just your standard Nazis that you're kind of used to seeing. It's not this like brass mean guy who's just going to like shoot you on demand. I mean, there is some of those elements and some of that, but it's played much more subtly as we have like the, the two kind of music kind of clashing and one, the French anthem kind of like overcoming uh, of the German one. So I love that scene. I mean, I read that like it was actual refugees that were actually on the set and that made it really emotional. People were actually crying and it was, uh, kind of being filmed during this kind of point in time that it, it just plays hand in hand with the actual fiction that you're making. So it's it's really stunning. I mean, it's it's not you don't see films like this where it's so tied into the time of the year and the exact time frame of the war as it's happening. I mean, we definitely haven't seen that in a long time. Maybe we could go back to like the 70s, maybe with like Vietnam. Maybe there's a couple of Vietnam films that are kind of engrossed in the same history while they're making the film and the fact that it's it's so broad and compelling in that way where the themes could be looked at as characters could be individual countries i mean that's fascinating that's super cool and that's i'm sure i don't want to bring it up because i'm sure you could go on <laughs> on and on about it but i i know a lot of people will look at like lord of the rings in the same way as like certain characters being uh, a representation of the nazis and it being about world war ii so it's cool to see that. I wonder if that kind of came from some classic film that are Tolkien, but we don't have to go down that. <laughs> we don't have to go down that, that well, rabbit hole. I just want to say that it would really just be World War One. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's World War One. Yeah, yeah, you're the you're the Lord of the Rings guy. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm, we'll save that. We'll save. <laughs> we'll save that whole conversation. But anyway, but yeah. So there, it's so, it's so fascinating. And then what it does set up is that it creates this whole other subplot of the film. And, and again, like subtext of the film where it's about these background characters who are just trying to get out of Casablanca, that they're trying to escape and they're trying to get on this plane. And the plane becomes its own motif about flying away and, and, and getting out and, and being free of this land that is desolate except for this one city in the desert. And it, it it's certainly really good. And so let's kind of just like jump into the film, even though we, we already did, but let's jump into it a little bit more chronologically. So we get into the intro of the film we get a lot of these great quick cuts and an action of of all these people in Casablanca you know we get little bits of dialogue here and there to understand like oh that person's from this country or that person's from that or that person's trying to escape or that person's a pickpocketer and so on and so forth and then what it does then leads into the Rick's Cafe and it becomes more of that except now it's a little bit of a seedier place there's drinking there's gambling smoking uh, you know, girls and men just like trying to do what humans do, I guess. And uh, uh, it, it it adds again more to that, that human context. And so then we enter Rick's and it's like this really fun place. We see Sam playing the piano and then we get this wonderful entrance of Humphrey Bogart where he has his head down playing chess, 
apparently he was a very great chess player uh so he loved playing chess and we get and we get to see this like this huge action star not action star but this huge hollywood star in this supposed romantic movie which is just incredibly interesting and it's really cool that we're finally not that we're finally seeing but we're seeing actors starting to branch out and break out of their archetypes and I just thought the whole like first 20 minutes is of so fast paced, gets you right into the movie. You know what's going on. You know which characters are where. And that's not even, and the love story hasn't even started by that point already. You're so fascinated and interested by it. I would say that it's probably one of the best openings that we've seen yet. Yeah. Not only is it such a great opening scene and it takes a while. I think it's almost like 10 minutes until we see Humphrey Bogart. And he's also just in a great, great casting choice because he he's in this love story right but it's a love story that it's not just you slowly build and see their love and see their love develop it's like this previous history that we've had between this couple and we don't know what that history is and it's like teasing at it and yes we have this introduction to rick but we're like who is rick how does he own this place he's american how did he end up here like the film asks so many questions while it's still like giving you a lot of information you know it's telling you that these papers are missing, that Nazis have been killed. It's showing you how kind of seedy and Casablanca is, and it's setting it up perfectly with people being robbed, people being murdered. It's it's just building up this perfect setting for our film, and the film doesn't really want to leave until the very end, and it's kind of perfect in the way it sets it up because it's coming in, planes are coming in, people are dying, and then it brings us to Rick, who he's the center. He's like the center force of this bar, and I, I saw you... Or when we first actually spoke about this, you said how it was so much like the cantina in the original Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And it was so funny because I also wrote that in my notes that it's it's so identical. I mean, it doesn't really look like it per se. I think you could see some inspiration in the way it looks. But and, and it's just this is one of the most diverse films I think we've seen yet. Not in terms of its main characters, because there's very little diversity, if at all, other than Sam. Um, yeah. Yeah, and as our main leads, but in terms of like background actors and people all throughout the scenes um, that aren't leading characters, it's very diverse. Uh, probably because we had actual refugees on the set playing extras, so it's it does feel like that where it's like a bunch of different characters that are in the background. Everyone has their own little world and their own life, and if you just want to stay in this caf in this cafe or this bar, you just want to like have a drink yourself. It's very inviting uh, and seedy. Yeah, I mean we actually for the most part, we're in the cafe for the entire film. There's very little set changes, um, if any at all. And yeah, bring up the whole, uh, the most Eisley cantina thing or place from star Wars. It, it, I, again, like we talked about with, uh, with mutiny on the bounty and, and how captain Bly was like Darth Vader. This has to have been a huge influence for Spielberg. I was actually watching uh, not Spielberg for Lucas. And I was watching a Spielberg video. That's why I said that of, him talking about Casablanca and just the influence and, and how revered he felt about this. And and that's why we, in the cold open, we talk about classic Hollywood films because it's so hard to not acknowledge that a film like Casablanca could influence star Wars, but it, it's true. And it's there. Uh, and when you think about a character like Signor Ferrari, it's like job of the hut. It's, it, it it's so, it, it's so specific and it, and it works and you can't, and it's so easy just to see the similarities and, uh, I truly appreciate it more, and it makes me love Lucas's own work because he's able to recognize and make uh, you know homage to the old classics, and it's just this great big circle of film. Uh, makes you just love movies, yeah. more honestly. Oh and, yeah, and when you like know certain details about a film, that kind of connects to another film. It just 
it it makes you love film as a medium even more because it's like wow like this amazing creator stood on this creator's shoulders to get to this point where it's like the film can be drastically different but you could see those nuances that they've like plucked out and brought that style or brought that character into their world and made it unique in their own way and I just love that that's why I love movies so much and another if we're talking about like references or kind of uh, later on references to this movie I think we see a lot of that in Temple of Doom the second uh, Indiana Jones film where he's wearing the classic white suit that Rick wears they have the opening at the Obi-Wan cafe is very much like this restaurant uh, in the beginning of that film and it's also he's very similar to Humphrey Bogart in the way Harrison Ford has like previous lovers and they don't really tell you much and it's slowly like brought out by their dialogue slowly over time and he has the same kind of uh, stubborn stoicness of Humphrey Bogart and how brass he is and how just like maybe he wouldn't be the best to hang out with but you like want to hear all the stories that he has. Yeah, just trying to think of Humphrey Bogart as Han Solo is pretty fascinating. Oh yeah, I could to, totally see yeah, it in I another world, it. right? Yeah, I, I could definitely see it and uh yeah, it just sets up the whole world like so well uh, when you introduced into into his cafe. And so we continue, you know, on through throughout the through the film in the beginning and and we get to see more of Rick and, and how he works the club and his cafe and just how the gambling works and and so then we're just waiting. We're waiting for the next thing to happen and what happens is that Ingrid Bergman's character Ilsa Lund comes into the cafe and you wouldn't know anything yet except for Sam the piano player is the one to make the first recognition of like oh we have to know who this person is because he sees her and his eyes go wide and you know and then immediately she asks for Sam to come over to play music and he's like you know you shouldn't be here he's like you know she's asking for Rick and he's like Rick's not here because Sam is really protective of Rick and making sure that Rick is going to be okay and then she asks to play as time goes by uh, and Sam's like, I don't know that. And she starts to hum it. And then Sam starts to play it. And it's this really beautiful song. And they, they start to sing it. And then Rick, you know, comes into the scene. He's like, I thought I told you to never play that. And then as he's about to say his next word to Sam, he sees that Elsa's there. And that's when the film really opens up. That's when we really get the romance of this film, the intrigue, the mystery of who are these two characters? What is their past and what's going to happen next? Uh, it's that mystery box effect yeah. where you're like, well, there's so many elements. You can tell how much each character means to each other, but you don't exactly know why. Yeah. And we can already, and we already know like a few minutes beforehand that Rick isn't really, not that he's not into women, but he just doesn't really have time for them because you have this girl, Yvonne trying to, you know, get Rick. And he's just like, he's like, I don't have time for you. Like, I don't have time for this. And um, so you just, you can tell that he just doesn't give a, a fuck really about m many people or many things which is what makes him the the america of the film being the neutral thing that has to be convinced to actually do something he and seems so, to care about himself and the bar, yeah much like you i think you could relate to america at the time yeah exactly and you can yeah so you've you you can connect with rick in, in that way but then elsa comes in and that's when everything gets turned over that's when rick starts to go against the character caricature or archetype of character that people know him for you know people don't drink with rick because rick has always refused drinks but then he comes and all of a sudden he is drinking with everybody and it he finally has like a, a change of heart he softens up a little bit because he starts to be emotional and and that's brought out you know later on you know in the night of the 
of the time in the of the movie. Is that how the best way to phrase it? I don't know. But that <laughs> night in the movie, he's all alone drinking in the bar and he has and this is probably my second criticism, the thing that I just didn't like about the film was the flashback. You know, so we know that, you know, Rick and Elsa were in Paris and because they have this conversation with, you know, Victor Laszlo's there and and uh, you know, and, and Claude Rains' character is there as well. And so we're like, well, what happened in Paris? What happened? And then we get this flashback of Paris and it just doesn't, it slows down a film that was so well paced and, and, and moving so quickly and, and boom, 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 boom. But all of a sudden flashback. And at the end, like in my notes, I wrote like, okay, like that was necessary. But then thinking about it more, I'm like, what if they just didn't say it? I think the film would be honestly that much better. Cause there would still be that mystery of like what happened in Paris? You know, what, what was it that they had that they couldn't have anymore? And especially because we don't see any, like we don't see her making this decision to leave. You know, we never get that satisfaction. We just see him being stood up at the train with Sam. Yeah, those are great points. I mean, I definitely agree with you that it's probably the biggest fault in the film simply because I just don't think it's necessary. And it's probably maybe like 10 minutes that you're in that flashback. And maybe it's not even that long. No, it's sure. it, no, it's not that long, but it just... It slows down what was already being built up. So it's well. built up, and the film's like pretty short. I mean, it's an hour and forty minutes, but it, it really didn't need it because, like we were saying, that kind of mystery box and it's allowing the plot to slowly unfold, and it makes you kind of engage more into the story because you're asking more questions. You're like want to know their relationship. You want to know how they had the falling out or what happened. So when you actually are given that and they show you that, it's can never be as satisfying as what you see in the same way that when you read a book, you can never see those exact representations when that book is adapted onto film. Like there is something so magical about having characters talk about their history and their past, but without actually revealing that. And maybe you can reveal certain things through dialogue. And I think that this film really does that. It's just that the backstory in the flashback it doesn't add enough. You know, it shows that she left him, that they were really in love, but it's more jarring and takes you out of the film, I think, than anything else throughout it. And even more so, we're like so centered around the bar. All of the shots for the most part, most part have been like interiors where we're stuck inside. And then we get like a shot where they're driving and they're using that like backdrop yeah. or green screen that you would see nowadays where it's just like, so it takes you so out of the movie where you're like, oh man, this feels like, an entirely different film like whoa 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 whoa. so visually it's jarring and then also you can feel it emotionally it's jarring where you're like okay they they just kind of fell in love that that's it and and she left and like okay that's why he's like this uh, i didn't really need that yeah it wasn't necessary and it still leaves you in the same place of how is this going to be resolved and uh it's actually interesting too because you know we love the script and there's so many great memorable lines and this like sequence is well really the flashback sequence holds uh some of the most memorable lines of the entire film so right before they even get into the uh into the flashback um it's just rick and sam in in the in the cafe by themselves rick is drinking sam refuses to leave he, sam is trying to actually get rick just to leave casablanca and forget about elsa for a few days and just to being a good friend that he is and but Rick is you know he's being very defiant. He wants Sam to play as time goes by, and he so he gives the line which is if she can stand it, I can play it. Which people you know will they like to think of it as play it again, Sam? Everyone always remembers that. 
I don't know where that even comes from. I I read that it could have came from like a like an SNL skit. I think. Well, there's or, been like spoofs of it. Yeah, there was. Um, <clears throat> what are, what are their names? Shoot, I'm blanking on the Marx Brothers. I think did like a film that was like spoofing this yeah. entirely, like two or three years after. That sounds right. I think it's that like cultural digest of yeah. fiction where you kind of like digest it and spit it back out to your friends and it kind of sticks. Yeah. So it's like over time, people kept thinking that's played against Sam, but it's really, um, you know, she can stand it. I can play it. And what she says too is play it once, Sam, for old time's sake. But, anyways, but then the other important lines that kind of come from this in the flashback, we get the first here's looking at you, kid. Uh, we also get. Uh, a great line from Elsa, which is with the whole world crumbling, we picked this time to fall in love. And then right before she actually leaves Rick as she's like, okay, like we're going to meet the train station. She goes, kiss me as if it was the last time. And that's just like one of those memorable lines that always, you know, stands out. And so then we come back out of it and, you know, Rick is still distraught and he gives another great line, which is of all the gin joints in all the towns and all the worlds. She walks into mine. And it's just like that kind of dialogue that I actually really like that. Now he's not just saying that, you know, that why does she have to come here? He specifically quotes it as like in this town, in this, in the world, in my gin joint that she has to come into mine. And I just really like that specific specificity, specificity, specific. I don't even, I can't even speak sometimes, but regardless uh, it's, it's that kind of writing that I truly like. And, is that, you know, it was based off of unproduced play, but it's just also really well written and also really well acted and goes into that whole dichotomy again and question that I always have. But uh, yeah, but the film goes on. Were there any like scenes in between, like from this point on to really the end of the film because it's so short that like really stands out uh, from the film, for at least for you? I think the scene where she kind of confronts them, where they have their kind of like kiss and reunion, that's really compelling. Because not only do we see a like femme fatale like become that kind of iconic figure pulling a gun on Rick, it's just like wow, like this. Not only do the papers mean a lot for uh, Laszlo. I mean, we haven't spoken too much about Laszlo. We can talk about him as well, played by uh, Paul Henreid. But uh, yeah, I love that scene just because we get it. We're getting some of those like iconic iconic connections to that flashback. We're slowly seeing like where their relationship is coming and we're seeing Rick still being that kind of like defiant figure who refuses to let his guard down, but it's slowly, slowly breaking. And I think it's that scene where it kind of like finally uh, breaks them another notch down. And I know you really love that scene as well, where she comes to confront Rick. Yeah. I, I really like it because it's such a heightened emotional scene. I actually pulled up the, the script itself just to like kind of read some lines um, Elsa says to him, you want to feel sorry for yourself, don't you? With so much at stake, all you can think of is your own feelings. One woman has hurt you and you take revenge on the rest of the world. You're a, you're a coward and a weakling. And, and that is a great kind of line to point at Rick. And again, like a pointing at America, like you're the weak, weak one. You're the coward that just won't join in because you're hurt by one person's actions. And it's that. And, and I actually think it's like that line specifically that makes Rick you know, has that moment in his head where he's like, at the end, I got to help her. Like, I have to do something to help her. I, you know, she, she's the one who has to get out. It's not about me. It's about her. And then she like turns and points a gun at him because he refuses to give the papers uh, or the letters to him. And he goes, go ahead and shoot. You'll be doing me a favor. He's like so distraught and so depressed because of what she did. And part of me is like, 
you only knew her like 18 months ago and from the you know the world of the film so it's like where like where is this coming from but then you can also can be really hurt and and you feel sad that and bad that this guy had something or at least he thought he had something and then it was gone and uh it's certainly it's just certainly an emotional moment and and that line you know you'll be doing me a favor if you just kill me now uh it's very it's a heightened emotion and it's also shot beautifully we had like we haven't talked about Lazlo, we haven't talked about how beautiful this film looks and, and Michael Curtiz's like direction of it. But let's start actually with Lazlo first because he fits into this romantic triangle and, and part of the whole thriller of it is because he's not the guy that you want that you hate. You don't hate Lazlo because he's with Ilsa. You like Lazlo because of what he does and, and what you are is you're resentful of the fact that you can't hate him. You wish you had a reason for Ilsa to leave victor for rick but you really don't besides that oh well they look great together humphrey bogart and ingrid berman like they just look it's such a cute thing it's hollywood you want that romance but it flies in the face of that and it's like every time this movie is about to do something we're like i see where this is going like victor lazo is going to be an asshole he's going to possibly even like be elsa he's going to be like just a dick and then you slowly spend time with him and you're like oh no he's like He's just like the opposite of Rick. He's like, in fact, a better man than Rick is. He's yeah. a nicer guy than than Rick. He cares way more about other people than Rick does. And he's just someone who's like genuine and wants to fight for his cause. And you're like, oh, that's this character? Like, this is what he's going to be throughout the entire time? Like, I'm, I'm battling myself as a viewer to be like, why would she want to go with Rick when she has this guy who's not only so important to the world, but who seems to treat her fairly? You know, there's some hints that, like, he's not there for her all the time. Um, there's, like, you know, back and forth I saw while they were creating the film and when there comes to some of, like, the sex and the nature of that and having um, Elsa possibly leave uh, Laszlo at certain points, which I think we'll talk about as we get to the end. But it's – he was so surprising because you're like, why – how is this the character? I'm, like, so shocked that he would – just so be focused on his work and then he becomes so much a part of the plot that he's it's not like your classic love triangle where they're like battling out at each other like they're insulting each other like it's almost like rick and elsa are kind of separated in their love story not trying to involve him because he's he's too big he's too important to even like bring them into their stupid love affair because it's not even worth it one she's married to him too because He's got way more on his mind, uh, essentially not trying to be killed by the Germans and try to get out of Casablanca peacefully. But he's so integral to the plot, and so are the papers. And we talked a little bit about a MacGuffin. And for anyone who doesn't know, a MacGuffin is like essentially using a specific object in the world of the film and that being the central point of the plot, right? Trying to obtain that, trying to get it back, you know, being able to use this one sole object as the centerfold of the plot and that needing to go somewhere or needing to be retrieved. So I think you can compare a lot of that to Indiana Jones as well, but this is the first, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the first one that uses a MacGuffin. And Lazo is so important to that MacGuffin because it is the paper, it's the freedom of being able to get out of Casablanca. And I think a lot of people spoof on MacGuffins nowadays because it's been so used over time. And I think with this being like our 16th film in a row, 
it's it feels so unique because it's like we haven't seen that yet a lot of them about have been about true stories depicting lies depicting war depicting love and they haven't really focused on a pivotal plot that revolves around an object but I think it works so well in this because the object isn't just papers. It's it's freedom essentially. Yeah. It's it's signifying something way beyond just a signal object can be. And and Laszlo is so important to that that I'm like shocked that the, the film got made in this way because it just feels like it shouldn't be. And I think when we get to the MPAA kind of stuff towards the end and with sexuality, it kind of makes sense because the film is kind of almost forced to become this. To, to have Elsa not leave Laszlo because a married woman can't leave her husband, which yeah. is like a very important thing for the MPAA. So, yeah, I mean, he was so like genuine and kind as a character in his performance that I enjoyed him every time he was on screen. He's very like suave and, and uh, also very handsome guy. Yeah, he's a handsome guy, but I also do have to say that he's not, he doesn't do like too much in the film. There's like no, a few background. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like a few key scenes he has with Rick. Um, but yeah, he's like, he, he is this genuine person. He does throw himself into like fighting for the world, which is like what I imagine, uh, you know, why Elsa would be in love with him. And at the same time, she thought he was dead and she thought, she thought she didn't have a husband anymore. And so that's why she was with Rick. And then she sticks to her vows and her duty to, to Victor, which is why she goes back to him when she finds out that he is alive. I mean, I also read that that was an addition made like a line yeah. that had to be added because the MPAA refused to let a woman essentially cheat on her husband in a film. So they had to add that line yeah. to make, to make it seem that she thought he was dead to therefore be their relationship with Rick to be acceptable. Yeah. For it, for it to actually work on screen, which is just so bizarre. It's well, weird well, how the, the movie's structured by like yeah. all these changes. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So yeah, Victor, becomes this like integral part and then the MacGuffin is thrown in there. It actually makes me think of like the Maltese Falcon. Uh, I know you haven't seen it, so I don't want to like same kind of cast. And yeah. Crew almost, yeah. Right? It's the same. Yeah. It has, has Humphrey Bogart, Peter Laurie and Sidney Greenstreet all, you know, coming back, you know, Sidney Greenstreet and Laurie kind of like to get a seat back in Casablanca versus the Maltese Falcon. But yeah, it was like this whole object that the whole movie is based around and you don't really, it's not really used much. Like in Casablanca, you see the papers at the beginning and as soon as he hides it, you really don't see him again until the end when he pulls them out at the airport. And he's like, here, put the la you know, put Victor Laszlo and Elsa's name on here. They're the ones that are going to get out. So it, so yeah, so it becomes this like really interesting love triangle and love story, but then it's backdropped by this beautiful looking film and, and set and, and just design of it. And that's all to the director, Michael Kurt who is, you know, Hungarian born and he came to America um, at a young age, uh, you know, his family lived for the Russian Revolution and they were just trying to get out of Eastern Europe. And he finally was able to come here after actually, he, I, no, never mind. He was actually in Hungary and worked a little bit as a director. And then he came over and he became so successful. He was revered by the studios just because he was able to work on these films, do it efficiently and do it right. And it, like it wasn't shit. He always put out really good quality work. And it's funny because we also don't think of him as this like iconic director. Cause when we think about Capra, we spent so much time talking about Capra and how important Capra films were, especially as an immigrant and, and building up this whole thing. Well, Kurt, you know, Curtis was the same exact thing almost. And we just don't really talk about him, but yet he makes a film that is so quintessential to world war two and, and talking about America's involvement uh, that it only, it would only feel like an American film or an American filmmaker can make it. Uh, but it's a Hungarian born uh, person who makes it. 
and what I really loved about him and his whole direction of the film is the is the way it, that it advances that we actually do see a change in shots we do see an advancement in the technology of filmmaking there's so many complex movements within the within the film there's the lighting design is incredible the costumes I know you love the costumes in this film a lot and it's just all so well detailed and and apparently Curtiz was like that he was such a detail-oriented person especially in pre-production so that as soon as he got into it and making the film it was quick and they just got into it and before like the 40s he was making like six films a year which is just incredible uh, for any person to do that but he 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 just really knew how to have his own style and and how to really hone into that to tell a really good story. Yeah, I think it's the nuance and the subtlety of throughout the entire film and all the details that really make it what it is. You know, the style of the camera work. You know, when a lot of people watch a movie that has a lot of dialogue, even if it's really witty and, and entertaining and sometimes really hilarious in this film, it can be boring for people. It can be slow if it's just a static shot of two characters talking. It's That's not really interesting, um, even though if what the characters are saying are interesting uh, is interesting. But with with what he does here like we have such awesome like camera movements with like these cool dolly ins the the characters kind of revealing especially when rick and elsa first meet for the first time there's that like kind of like pushing close-up that they have of both of their faces it's like kind of mimicked with both characters and it like it impacts you because you like see the transformation of not only their face but with the camera it comes perfectly in connection um but yeah i i saw that critique he really loved uh uh, set locations and like really diving deep when it was like a physical location he would like want to see every single detail yeah. would, would go down alleyways because he wanted to see like everything about the space not only to use it in the film but to know and bring that like authenticity from that space or the people that are being used and I think you could look at that as the refugees as well being using actual refugees in the film knowing what it will bring probably it makes that singing moment with the French Revolution song like it makes that much more powerful because those performances probably play way more realistically than they wouldn't and yeah you mentioned the costumes such amazing costumes here I mean it's so diverse because of how many different types of people are in the bar. So everyone has all sorts of different uh, costumes, like with the fezes on the head, you have the Nazi uniforms, you have the French military uniforms, you have like the iconic classic white suit that he wears with like the white flower, like uh, amazing, beautiful imagery that I think is stuck with uh, cinema throughout its entire time. I mean, it's hard not to see like a classic white suit and not think of uh humphrey bogart now. <laughs> it really it really yeah. is and a- I mean, anything ingrid bergman wears i mean she's absolutely gorgeous but anything she wears she has such funny crazy hats throughout the movie some crazy scarves like everything is just so well detailed and beautiful and you can tell she's kind of like a more of an elite aristocrat who's kind of like above the the military life and the the low life that rick lives and there's that kind of like dichotomy, dichotomy between their relationship as well. She's Rick is seen a little bit lower than she would probably, especially with Laszlo by her side. So all of those details, like even just the costumes, add so much to the film. And seeing the iconic uh, ending scene with all the rain and the trench coat and all of uh, Humphrey Bogart's or Rick's fedoras and cool hats that he wears. Just <laughs> awesome. I loved all the costumes in the film. You would wear a fedora like that? If I had a cool trench coat like that with it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 
I, 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 yeah, I guess if I had a cool trench coat too with that, I would definitely wear it. But yeah, I, I just love Kersey's direction. I, I'm a huge sucker for good lighting design and the lighting in this movie is so fucking good. You know, they have all these, you know, deep pools of shadow. Then, you know, the contrasting light. There's so many things that give off shadows, like all these like blinds and, and window shades. You have the constant movement of the, of the searchlight circling Casablanca. So it's always moving in the background. It's always watching. You always know that, that something is there in the background that, that instills the fear in the characters. Uh, and even, you know, someone pointed out that they did like specific lighting for each character's you know, he had like the contrasting light on Rick's face. You know, sometimes his face was in half shadow and half light. It plays with that film. It's a film noir motif, but it plays with like his split, uh, his split decision of like what to do. Elsa is always soft lighting, soft focus. They use a lot of lights to, you know, put it in her eyes and, and make it sparkle. Uh, you have Laszlo, who's very, very blown out. He's in that light. He's like, th- that's his chosen thing. And like, yeah, you know, he's not a righteous person, but he's definitely, you know, choosing a good path in his life. So it, I, I, I love lighting design and, and, and what lighting can tell w- within the story. And yeah, and then the shots are just complex. I mean, I think we had talked about that in like in All Quiet on the Western Front. We were comparing that to the Broadway melody and like we were just so disappointed the Broadway melody had little to no shot changes. Whereas then when you watch all quiet on the Western front, it felt like, well, there's so many crazy shot changes, but this one I think takes it another step further. You feel like the camera's almost handheld because there's so many dolly ins and pulling out and, and shifting, you know, and, and that's the blocking and just Curtis's own design. He was always wanted to have the camera moving and always, you know, I just have something to make it visually stimulating except for besides rather just having like, you know, the actors just act then it just becomes a play and and while that's good and, and while it's fun it's not the same as using the camera and using the actors as like a dance and have them move with each other yeah the film's a visual delight and i think something we didn't mention uh, early on is the just the opening topography map the opening credits oh, that, yeah. are amazing it's like so cool to see i mean we've seen that now so much in adventure films even indiana jones again comes up again where we're seeing the map move, we're like being taken to Casablanca, just like the people that would fly there or the people that are trying to escape out of there are kind of being stuck there and you see the globe. It's I love that opening. Yeah. And even and even the detail of that certain countries were shaded different colors to represent where they were in the battle so you could see the clear shading of like the Nazis occupying Europe and then the neutral countries. We don't really see, you know, America on that, so I wonder what color they would have made it. But yeah, it's such a cool, interesting choice just to start out a film. And then again, like the pace of the film, it, it's so quick and, and, and it really moves it along and you don't feel like you're missing anything. If anything at all, you wish there's there was more just, you know, to dive into of just like in the cafe and learn more about the background characters just because it's so detailed and so interesting. So that's all Michael Curtiz's direction and decisions. And so then, yeah, the film goes on and we are... It, it's coming to a head. I mean, it's such a quick story where, you know, Rick has to decide how am I going to, he's, he's no, he's, he knows he's going to help them, but how am I going to help them? Am I just going to get Elsa out or am I going to keep her here with me? Am I going to get Victor out or, you know, with the two of them or just Victor? And you don't really know. And even uh, hearing about like behind the scenes stuff, they, the script was like always changing and no one knew what the ending was really going to be. 
And Ingrid Bergman even asked Michael Curtis, do she was like, how should I play this scene? You know, how, you know, am I going to know, like, do I know that I'm going to leave with Victor or, or be with Rick? And he's like, just play it neutral, <laughs> you know? And, and I, and you can tell, you know, when you want, when you rewatch it and you know, that fact that she's like, I don't know who I'm supposed to end up with. So how am I supposed to treat this? And, uh, you know, and sometimes I feel like that she's trying to be more loving to Rick, but then there are other times where she just has this big glow and, and look and feel for Victor. It's uh, it's a great decision on, on Curtis's part to do that as a director, to say to his actors, you don't know what the ending is going to be yet. So you make the decision for yourself of how you want to play it or just be neutral about it. I think for a lot of films, this wouldn't work. That, that type of direction, if you weren't across from Humphrey Bogart, if it wasn't about this kind of like broken shell of a man who refuses to like let any guard down because of how his heart was really broken. It just, that wouldn't work. That kind of like indecisiveness of knowing and the way it comes off on screen is that it is indecisive. It's like, I love this guy so much. We have this history. Like I know we have this spark and this connection, but is it right? And it feels like that constant back and forth. Like you can love more than one person and that internal debate of like whether something is right for you or just you think that's the best just because you have this like fantasy ideology of of what it should be and that's the way it plays off and that's way more complicated and then i'm sure like she was actually trying like ingrid was actually trying to act and portray because that's really something you can't fully portray and act and having that indecisiveness and not knowing which way to lean adds so much to that because it feels like there's just always that tension like maybe she's about to kiss him or maybe she's about to take out that gun or same with Rick maybe he's about to say uh, I'm gonna rat you out to the Nazis I don't care maybe I will give you a kiss and bring you and keep you in Casablanca safe so it keeps you on the outside as a viewer and that's so compelling because you constantly have to guess you constantly have to like stare into these characters eyes and think for yourself what's the best decision for Rick should Elsa stay? Why would she stay? And like kind of break out all the plot points and all the character details to kind of determine one thing or the other. So it's really interactive, this film, in terms of how you should digest and yeah. and view it. And it's, you know, it's Rick's decision and realization. And I sort of touched upon it before that Elsa has this duty towards Victor and she's married to him and, and she values that a lot too. And And I think that's what ultimately tips his tips him just to say okay you know i'm gonna help you out and she even has a line in there that she asked rick just to to figure it out for all of us this is what she said i have it i don't know what is right any longer you have to think for both of us for all of us so she's you know she loves rick but she's saying also at the same time i have this husband i have to be dutiful to him as well which is then what ultimately leads to the ending of the film so the ending is sort of set up where you think that it seems like Rick makes a pact with Louis, uh, you know, that, okay, I'm going to give you Laszlo, but Elsa will be left alone. He's like, fine. Then Louis comes and then they, they take Louis and they like point, you know, Rick pulls out the gun. He's like, you're coming with me. We're going to get everyone to the airport. So now you think Rick is backstabbing, you know, Louis and then they get there and it, then it becomes probably the most memorable scene of the entire film that everyone always thinks of is them you know, it was Rick and Elsa talking to each other before she boards the plane. So, and again, you can see that, uh, that she doesn't know what's going to happen when he's like, okay, here are the papers, sign it for Victor and Elsa. And you can see that expression on her face. She's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, I thought I'm staying. I thought I was going to be with you. I thought Victor's the one that's getting out of here. 
But then he's like, you know, you have to go on there and uh, and do it. And he, then he has this like famous speech that everyone knows. Uh, and so it goes like this. I'm saying it because it's true inside of us. We both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Elsa goes, but what about us? And Rick says, we'll always have Paris, another famous line. We didn't have. We, we'd lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. Elsa says, when I said I would never leave you, and Rick interrupts, and interrupts her and goes, and you never will. I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Elsa, I'm not... I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now, here's looking at you, kid. So another here's looking at you, kid. I actually think the best line of it is that it doesn't take much to see that problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Because again, it's Rick and I guess America is saying that's like what the problems that we have inside and, and like it personally within us is not as important as like this bigger world issue of what's going on and then Elsa gets on that plane with Victor and then they fly away to live to Lisbon major Strasser comes because he was tipped off by Louis and then they shoot Strasser and Louis you know covers up for Rick and it's the beginning of that beautiful friendship and then that's Casablanca and it's so quick and it just ends right there and you're like that was amazing I am so you know you're you're feeling just so many emotions you wish Elsa didn't leave you're like happy that she got out you're happy that Rick's okay. Uh, you're happy they sort of beat the Nazis, but then you're like, okay, well, what what's next? And like, if it was today, we would get a trilogy definitely out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, we would definitely get it where Elsa comes back to Rick in the second movie, and then you know, it, then we don't know what will happen in the third movie, and that's when they defeat the Nazis. And uh, but I'm really glad that it that this is really just a standalone story, and that it just ends, and there's kind of a mystery of like we don't know what's left. But it's a perfect little ending to just a quick little romance and just drops you right in and pulls you right out. And, and that's it. Yeah, it's, it was kind of a shocking end for me where I'm like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you know that he wasn't going to end up with Elsa? No, not at all. Like, so, so you thought like when you would see those like those scenes, stills like, and images yeah, from her, like yeah. you kid, you think that they're going to end up together? Yes, that's what it seems like. And that's what my perception would be. And that's. What I think this movie subverts so many expectations and especially seeing the past 15 movies, seeing some of the cliches when it comes to like romantic uh, relationships throughout these films. It's I just expected that so much Like Lazo is going to get killed. Um, I don't think Rick would go that far as killing him. I know in the script at one point that was a possibility, but it really shocked me. I'm like, wow, he's just letting them go. And it was like the more I sat on that decision and that kind of ideology, it made me kind of like pin everything together where it's like this is the best thing for his character this is him fully realizing what he needs to do and and how much this decision will actually impact not just their lives but everyone's lives of the whole world possibly because of how strong laszlo is as an ally for the war yeah it's the it's the closure that they they needed he needed that he needed to have that closure did he need to maybe slam the door in her face? Maybe that is like a way for him that he needed to just say like, you got to go. Like, I can't have you in my life. I like to think that maybe he's just understanding and that he's like, you have your thing to do. And what we had was special, but clearly she wants to respect the duty she has to Victor and, and he's going to respect that too. 
and it, and it makes it that much more beautiful because they're not they're not leaving they're leaving because of duty and they're allowing their love just to be there and just be a part of their lives to always be a thing yeah yeah, yeah like they'll always have Paris <laughs> you know it's it's that beautiful little line which again adds to how great the screenplay is because just saying that we'll always have Paris is such a there's so many things said with you know three four little words it's true and I find it so interesting that that kind of final some of those final lines where he's saying like you know it was lost like we didn't have that and it's because from Rick's point of view he thought he she left him and he, she that she didn't want him that part of their relationship maybe the things she was saying it was just a lie that you know it was just a fling in the moment and then they could just move on but to him it was such something so much deeper and for her it was something really deep and they had that really deep connection but she just couldn't express her that way because she had to leave all of a sudden it seemed you know not making the train with him so the fact that he says that that like her coming back it's like kind of healed that wound that he had in his heart and it's now allowing him to move forward in life not just with women but in life being someone who can stand by his decisions someone who doesn't have to just kind of like float around and he can do his job he can run his bar but he he knows that he can do something bigger in life and he has a bigger meaning in life which is so powerful i mean i think that's anyone can relate to that in a movie wanting and hoping that their life means something beyond just another person or beyond uh, just one person having a funny story. Like it, it has more of a meaning and affects the world more than you could ever think of. So it's really, really powerful. I'm getting choked up just talking about <laughs> it. Um, but I wanted to also talk uh, some of the backstory and some of the MPA double <clears throat> a kind of interference where, they in a way help the film and I think there's probably some films maybe even Psycho you could say that interference and forcing them to make certain decisions I think drastically improved the film so we talked a little bit about uh, when she was in the flashback in Paris she couldn't uh, outright be cheating on Laszlo so she thought he was dead that is a decision that they were forced to do due to the motion picture production code because they couldn't portray a woman leaving her husband for another man and, and then we have other different changes, you know, where we had to reduce sex and that sexual nature. And I think for some people at the time, there wasn't enough like sex and, and enough of that uh, direct, not just nudity, but enough of that sexuality of like making out and kissing. It's really like one kiss that they share together other than like the flashback stuff. But I think introducing more sex, it hurts their relationship in a way and it makes their relationship feel more just about each other and each other's bodies than it does emotionally. And then of course we have the end where there's this decision to make and right. And not knowing the actual ending, not knowing the full story as a viewer, I'm like, well, this is a happy ending. He has to have the happy ending and that's going with her. And sometimes not all happy endings are hundred percent happy for the character to have that full arc, to have that full meaningful change in their life. And it is happy ending for for rick and for for elsa because they have that they have that moment in their life forever and she can also go and influence the the world and he can also go and influence the world and they'll always have that moment together and by making it that laszlo gets killed and they go off together yeah that would be sweet that would be nice that's romantic in a way but it doesn't 
play on those themes in the same way that we have here. I think we would lose a lot of that kind of relation to World War II and how Rick could be seen as America. It loses those elements and it loses this complete arc that he could have. I mean, just being able to reconnect and fall in love, it feels cheaper than what we have here. And because they wouldn't let her do that, they wouldn't let him kill him at the very end and Laszlo and take their spot. It put the film and the screenplay in a position that only enhanced it, which is really interesting. I feel like we talk a lot about how it kind of ruins films and it just stops creators from doing what they need to do. But in a weird way, this like may have made this film a classic film because of these changes. Yeah, that's certainly a, an interesting way to to put it. Um, I yeah, I I again like I, I think I'm okay with that. Rick and Elsa didn't end up together, and and if that's the result of because we're you know because Joseph Breen was like we can't have anything sexualized or any more romance or anything beyond just like a single kiss. If that's the result, then I'm okay with that decision. There are other decisions I don't agree with, but. You know, this one I'm I'm okay with. I think that it just makes the story that much better. And like, I wish that I wish that people did that more. Even today, like, I think that I wish people were more critical on themselves for just making a movie and and including sex, not just to just include it, but like to actually advance the story. There are some things that are just so unnecessarily sexualized that it just takes away from it. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It doesn't really make sense for the film. But for this, you know. It, it works. It ends up working. Clearly, there's a precedent for it for any filmmakers out there listening that you don't have to be overtly sexual for it to, be, to work. It's great when it's done right, but it's not great when it's just used just to be used. And uh, yeah, so I weirdly sign, siding with the MPA on this. I'm usually never for censorship. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre how much the film was kind of sculpted and shaped and it's fascinating to think about how this movie was just completely juggled up in the air where they didn't even know the ending while they were filming it. They're doing the flashback. They don't even know their relationship to each other. Like how do all these elements are so messy yet they still come together? I don't get it. I think that's just like a perfect storm of the script, the the performances of the actors and the, and the direction. And we honestly like the performance of the film, they're like really good. And we're going to talk about the Oscars and like, and them being nominated, but I don't feel anything strongly as I have of past films if they should have won for their performances or not. I actually think that they're pretty just subtle and 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 good and standard and works for that you know this specific film. You know, Ingrid Berman isn't really in the film like too much. She has like a few powerful scenes, but it's never you know anything that's like really uh, it's it's really lengthened. It's again like because this is just at such a quick pace and you have so many characters to balance and so many different subplots also happening that she kind of gets brushed to the side at times. And I'm kind of okay with that. Like I'm kind of okay with that. Like we just get this quick snapshot of everything. And then we get these really nice, subtle performances that just work well for the script that just makes it, uh, everything just works together perfectly. There are no real issues without, you know? Um, but yeah, so I think that kind of sums up this whole conversation on Casablanca um, I, I think you'll, I think, you know, like what our feelings are about this, but let's talk about the 16th Academy Awards. Good evening, everyone. We're speaking to you from the forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, the film capital of the world. Tonight, the motion picture industry has on its best bib and tucker for its Academy Award. In years past, this has been the signal for the notables of Mobiland to gather around the festive board. But tonight, the routine has been radically changed. 
Everyone dined at home using their own ration points and are now gathering here at the Chinese Theater for the big news. Who and what wins the 1943 Oscars of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? Later this evening at 10.15, Warner Brothers KFWB will bring you a broadcast direct from the stage of the Chinese Theater, which will feature the presentations of the major awards. While everything in Hollywood is usually termed super, tonight we can truthfully call this a super premiere. No one motion picture studio is putting on the show. It is the industry, or more correctly, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is putting on this show. That means it includes the entire industry. For days now, not a seat has been available for this occasion, which of course means that the nation's screen favorites will be on hand. All of the industry's producers, directors, musical directors, everyone who has helped to make motion picture history are on hand tonight. The 16th Academy Awards were held on March 2nd, 1944 at the Groundman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. Jack Benny served as the master of ceremonies for the event, which lasted fewer than 30 minutes. This was the first Oscar ceremony held at a large public venue, and the broadcast originated on KFWB, but it was internationally broadcasted by CBS Radio via shortwave. For the first time, winners for the Best Supporting Actor and Actress categories won Oscars rather than plaques. But because of the war, the Oscar statuettes were made out of plaster rather than bronze. This was now the height of World War II, and we have four of the Best Picture nominees in 1943 that were all based around war or had war themes. Uh, in addition to the Best Picture winner, three of the other nine Best Picture nominees of 1943 were also war films with patriotic or sentimental themes. Academy Honorary Awards went to George Powell for the development of novel methods and techniques in the production of short subjects known as puppet tunes. And the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Hal B. Wallace, uh, who was the producer for Casablanca. Wallace was an American film producer, and he's best remembered for producing Casablanca, Adventures of Robin Hood, and True Grit, the 1969 version, along with many other films for Warner Brothers featuring stars like Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne, Betty Davis, and Errol Flynn. As a producer, he received 19 nominations for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Best Special Effects goes to Cash Drive. Photography effects by Fred Sarson and sound effects by Roger Heeman. Sarson's second Academy Award, and he previously won for The Rains Came in 1939 for Best Special Effects, and this is Heeman's only win during his career. Best Film Editing went to George Amy for the film Air Force. This is Amy's only Academy Award win. He had started out with Warner Brothers at the age of 17, and his fast-paced style of editing helped Warner Brothers earn their signature style uh, and gain early success in early Hollywood cinema. Best Cinematography Color goes to Hal Moore and W. Howard Green for Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera from 1943 is the only classic Hollywood movie monster film to win an Oscar. Claude Rains starred in the film as the Phantom. This is Moore's second Oscar win after the, A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935, where he became the only write-in to ever win an Oscar. Now, this is interesting because I know this isn't a debate between classic monster movie people. <laughs> I personally don't consider Phantom of the Opera to be like one of the classic Hollywood movie monsters. Would you? I wouldn't, but when I read that, I was very interested that it was considered, and I was... It kind of makes sense. I actually personally love Phantom of the Opera. There's a I could tell you a whole idea I have for using Phantom of the Opera as this whole psychotic adventure, 
but I will not reveal it on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear that after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about that for a long time. Uh, it's a very if you've never seen the play or the movie versions, the one with Gerard Butler and Amy Rossum is actually really good. Um, and it's a little scary. There are some pretty horror moments that for the 40s were probably very in your face and gory. I uh, prefer Phantom of the Megaplex <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> as the the one all <laughs> rendition of Phantom of the Opera. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I guess that, that that's fair. Best cinematography, black and white, goes to the Song of Bernadette to Arthur C. Miller. This is Miller's second Oscar after he previously won for How Green Was My Valley. And uh, is Miller is also one of the founders of the American Society of Cinematographers. Have you ever watched the credits of a film? And you see the letters ASC. That's because Arthur C. Miller is one of the founders of that organization. Best art direction for interior decoration and color goes to Phantom of the Opera. Art direction by Alexander Gullitson, John B. Goodman. Interior direction, Russell A. Gosman and Ira S. Webb. This is Gullitson's first of three Oscars. He would go on to win for Spartacus in 1960 and, and To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962. This is also Goodman and Webb's only Oscar win. And Gossman's first of two Oscar wins, he, as he would go on to win with Gullitson for Spartacus in 1960. Best Art Direction, Interior Direction, Black and White, goes to The Song of Bernadette. Art Direction, James Bassevi and William S. Darling. And Interior Direction, Thomas Little. Uh, so when talkies became a thing, James Bassevi transitioned from working as a set de- decorator to the head of special effects uh, for MGM. Darling, this is his second of three Oscar wins. He had previously won for the sixth Best Picture winner, Cavalcade, for their art direction. And then Thomas Little, this is Thomas Little's fourth win out of six total Oscars, and we mentioned previously in the last episode, as he is one of the only people to win both black and white and color direction categories in the same year. He had won previously for This Above All and My Gal Sal from 1942, and he also won for How Green Was My Valley. Best sound recording goes to Stephen Dunn for This Land is Mine. This is Dunn's first of two Oscars, and he would go on to win again in 1945 for The Bells of St. Mary's. Best original song went to You'll Never Know from Hello, Frisco, Hello, music by Harry Warren and lyrics by Mac Gordon. So the song is sung by Alice Faye in the film, and Alice Faye's film recording appears in Guillermo del Toro's 2017 film, which won Best Picture, the Shape of Water. So if you remember, the song is performed later in the film and Sally Hawkins is part of a dance number with, uh, I guess, the monster. I don't really want to call him the monster because he's this beautiful creature in the shape of water. Uh, Hawkins lips to a, uh, a new recording of the song by Renee Fleming and the London Symphony Orchestra. And what's notably not in this category for best original song is As Time Goes By for Casablanca. It had been written years before the film was made. Thus, it was deemed ineligible for the Academy Award consideration, and it was not nominated in this song category. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Ray Heindorf for This is the Army. This is another critique-directed film that was produced by Hal B. Wallace and Jack Warner. This film was adapted from a wartime stage musical with the same name, designed to boost morale in the U.S. during World War II. Ronald Reagan plays one of the lead roles in the film. And we've spoken previously about Heindorf as his win for Yankee Doodle Dandy in 1942, and he would win his third Oscar in 1962 for The Music Man. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture 
goes to the song of Bernadette to Alfred Newman. Uh, we've talked about Newman extensively before. This is his fourth of nine Oscar wins, and he's part of the Newman family of composers. But who is here? And this is the first time we're going to pause for a second to talk about how Casablanca didn't win. Um, so it didn't win for scoring, which I, I guess I sort of understand, but to backtrack a little, it didn't win for cinematography, which we really love the cinematography of, of the film. So I guess the song of Bernadette, we kind of maybe have to see now to see why it's been winning all these awards, especially these technical awards over a film like Casablanca that we thought was just so technically well done. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it has 12 nominations compared to Casablanca's eight. So it's a clear standout here. I think we've seen in the past that some of these films that they may have way more nominations haven't gone on to have that same kind of success or become a classic film. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the score. I think the score of Casablanca helps guide us from like characters kind of point of view and it helps us guide us into like the flashback. And obviously we have the iconic song that we really haven't spoken too much about the song itself and how, how compelling that really is from a story standpoint where music can not only remind you of someone, but take you back into places, take you back in time and how much music becomes like a signifier for us as humans as as meaning more than just the lyrics of the song or meaning more than just the notes from the music. And I think Casablanca shows that perfectly of how strong, not just the score, but obviously um, as time goes by, how just impactful music is on our lives. Yeah, and I've noticed that Max Steiner would use the, uh, as time goes by, you know, melody and, and theme throughout the movie to either heighten it or be subtle with the emotions and from scene to scene. Um, it's a great song. Uh, I think we could have spent maybe like a half hour talking about it. I just, it's so deep and, uh, it's such beautiful lyricism and, uh, yeah. So, you know, unfortunately that Max Steiner and, and that song specifically didn't get Oscars, but you know, what does it matter? Because we're all going to still talk about Casablanca versus a movie like the song of Bernadette, which is a little sad, but also kind of why we're talking about these movies. Best live action short subject to real goes to Jerry Bresler and Sam Coslow for Heavenly Music. This is Bresler's first of two Oscar wins, and he would also go on to win for the 1945 film Stairway to Light. This is Coslow's only Oscar win, and the short also has a brief cameo appearance of Billy Thomas, who is remembered for playing Buckwheat in The Little Rascals. Best live action short subject one reel went to Grantland Weiss for Amphibious Fighters. Best Short Subjects Cartoon goes to Fred Quimby for the Yankee Doodle Mouse. This is the f- Let's go Tom and Jerry. I just <laughs> had to like throw it in there. This is the first of seven Oscar wins for Tom and Jerry shorts. And the short features Tom, the cat, and Jerry the mouse chasing each other in a pseudo-warfare style and makes numerous references to World War II technology such as Jeeps and dive bombers rep- represented by clever use of common household items. I love Tom and Jerry. This is, sounds like an iconic classic uh, skit. I probably have seen this, honestly. Yeah. I feel like we both have probably seen yeah. this, but like, don't specifically remember when. I just love that Tom and Jerry, and before I we started this podcast, I'm learning more about it, and we sort of talked about it in a previous episode because it was nominated, or at least a prototype Tom and Jerry was nominated. The fact that it wins seven total Oscars, I just think is awesome, and I, I think Tom and Jerry is, is such a fantastic cartoon. I, I think it still holds up, and it's fun to watch even today as a 26-year-old. Yeah, I can't wait for that uh, HBO Max Tom and Jerry to win an Oscar. (laughs) Yeah, about that. 
Moving on, best documentary short subject went to December 7th, which was produced by the United States Navy. The film, though, was directed by John Ford and Greg Toland, and it's about the attacks on Pearl Harbor. The film was started within days of the attack. The original film was actually 82 minutes long and asked some embarrassing questions such as, why was there no long-range reconnaissance and no short-range air patrols? Further, the film had a lot of time devoted to the culture of the 160,000 Japanese Americans in Hawaii and their response to the attack. For these reasons, the long version of the film was censored for decades and shorter versions were subsequently released. Best documentary feature goes to Desert Victory by British Ministry of Information. Now, if you don't know, this is produced by the British Ministry. I'm thinking Harry Potter. (laughs) This is produced by... The British Ministry of Information documenting the Allies' North African campaign against Field Marshal Erwin Rommel and Africa Corps. Best Original Motion Picture Story went to The Human Comedy, written by William Saroyan. So the, it was based on the 1943 William Saroyan novel of the same name, but Saroyan actually wrote the 240-page screenplay first, and he left the film project and quickly wrote the novel and published it just before the film was released. The film stars... Mickey Rooney and Frank Morgan and Rooney plays a character named Homer living in his hometown of Ithaca, California during World War II. Uh, kind of has a dual-edged sword right there. The first edge being that Homer in Ithaca is part of the Odyssey and me and John went to Ithaca College. Best screenplay goes to Casablanca. Julius J. Epstein, Phil G. Epstein, Howard E. Koch based on Everybody Comes to Rick's by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. In the 1980s, this film script was sent to readers at a number of major studios and production companies under its original title, Everybody Comes to Rick's. Some readers recognized the script, but most did not. Many complained that the script was not good enough to make a decent movie. Others gave such complaints as it's too dated, too much dialogue, and not enough sex. I, so, I find that so fascinating that that, it's that was so even bizarre. done. Yeah, that was even done, I think, is fascinating. Well, I think we have like the height of yeah the, the late 60s and 70s, and it's so common for to have such an influence of like sex, and it's becoming more and more, I think, in the 1980s even. So I could see why you could say that. I mean, me, being too dated, it's like, yeah, it's kind of based around World War II, so I don't know how you could even come to that conclusion that it, it would be deemed too dated because it's of the time. In fact, I would say the opposite. I would be like, this is so accurate of the time yeah. like how is this possible like yeah. how this is too well written in fact yeah i i definitely agree with that i just i just find it completely odd that people wouldn't recognize the script that well so which then begs that question of like who's making these movies who's in charge of these studios <laughs> which is just another thing i've it's another big question it's another big question that i always have because i actually wonder if you were to do that today how many executives would know it how, how many young people know about Casablanca besides that? Oh yeah, the Casablanca, classic Hollywood film, and that just it. I could I I could rant. I could rant about the state of Hollywood and the state of filmmakers and how little people actually do give you know homage to these you know late early you know early not late early films, and it's just frustrating. So to like read that anecdote hey, that that they actually sent out the script to studios in the eighties and were like, you know, what, you know, what do you think of this film? And they were like, Oh, this is shitty. Just is mind boggling, but also shows the change in what people were into and what people liked. Um, you know, as the time, as time goes on, as time goes by, as one would say, 
But uh, there's actually some really other cool, interesting stuff about, you know, specifically the Epstein brothers who wrote this. So they were the first twins and the only twins to date to win an Academy Award, at least at the same time. Um, and then also, this is more just for my own enjoyment uh, and also for any of those baseball lovers out there. They, uh, they are the great uncle and grandfather of baseball executive Theo Epstein. And for those who may not know, he's the architect of uh, the Cubs and Red Sox and helping them, you know, break their curses in uh, 2004 and then 2016. So I just find that to be a really interesting connection to, uh, to baseball that, that, you know, that their great nephew and, and grandson were, was a part of this. And they also won an Oscar. And also there's just like really interesting things about the whole project because they left at sort of towards the beginning by Frank, cause Frank Capra wanted them to work on the why we fight series in DC. And when they were gone, Howard Koch was assigned to work on the film and he wrote about 30 to 50 pages. Then the brothers returned and they were reassigned to work on Casablanca. And contrary to what Koch had, you know, written or claimed to publish in his book, none of it was used, but then he still gets a credit for the film. And even though they, you know, never worked in the same room at the same time during the writing of the script, they still got the same credit. And in the final budget of the film, the Epstein's were paid $30,000, which is about $300,000 today. And Coke only earned forty two hundred, which is about fifty two thousand today, which is a lot today. But for back then, that's a big pay discrepancy for him working on the film for like a good act at least, uh, and it just doesn't get used. Best original screenplay went to Norman Krasna for Princess O'Rourke. Uh, this film is more notable for the lead performance of Olivia De Havilland, and it's not because of what she did on screen, John. I'm sure you were wondering, like, oh, she might probably gave a great performance. She cried a lot. Yeah. But she did give a good, a good performance, but that's not the reason why. So the film was a strenuous production for her, and it was put. It was a lot put onto Havilland's plate as a performer. She was run down, and she eventually filed a lawsuit against Warner Brothers, and the case became a landmark moment in Hollywood land because it took away studios' abilities to capitalize on performer contracts. So n- from that point on, Contracts had only be limited to seven years, which led to better treatment of performers during the length of the year, and it became known as the De Havilland Law. So, so why would you, you know why would they limit to seven years? So the the way that, uh, and this is explained to me my girlfriend, who's going to become a lawyer and a great lawyer. So I need her to explain this to me. But basically, the contracts basically were being used by studios to. Even though it said seven years, they considered seven years of actual work. So like hour by hour not by calendar years. And so then you would have people working for 30 years, getting shit treatment and shit contracts. But because of Olivia to have land, it changed, you know, the course of that for performers and they were able to get better pay, better treatment, and were able to move from studio to studio. So it's this, we're finally starting to see the breaking out of the studio system. It's not going to fully happen just yet, but this is like the crack in the foundation type of thing to it. Best supporting actress goes to, Katina Paxinu, for whom the bell tolls as Pilar. Paxinu is originally from Greece. She was in England when World War II broke out, and she was unable to return home. She went to the United States to continue her acting career, and she was picked to play Pilar in the film, winning in her first American role. For whom the bell tolls was Ingrid Bergman's first Technicolor film. Hemingway's handpicked Cooper and Bergman for their roles, and this is its only win out of nine nominations. Best Supporting Actor went to Charles Coyburn for The More the Merrier as Benjamin Dingle. 
Uh, this is Coyburn's only win out of three nominations, including The Devil and Miss Jones, and he was also nominated for The Green Years. Uh, the More the Merrier is a film about the housing shortage during World War II, uh, but I actually wanted to take the second to talk about Ch- Charles Coyburn and not positively. Uh, so in the 1940s, Coyburn served as vice president of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which is a group that opposed leftist infiltration and proselytization in Hollywood during, Cold, during the Cold War. Uh, he was born and raised in the southern state of Georgia, and Coyburn was a member of the White Citizens Councils, a white supremacist, a white supremacist group which opposed racial integration. So fuck you, Charles Coyburn. Best Actress goes to Jennifer Jones for the song of Bernadette as Bernadette Soybris. Jones is the sixth youngest actress to win Best Actress, winning on her birthday, March 2nd, 1944, at 25 years old. Looking further into Jones's history, we saw some really sad acknowledgments of mental illness throughout her lineage and her family, and also suicidal tendencies and even her own daughter committing suicide at, at a certain point in her life. Uh, which led uh, Jennifer Jones to fund the Jennifer Jones Simmons Foundation for Mental Health and Education, which ran until 2003. One of Jones' primary goals was the founda- for the foundation was to destigmatize mental illness. She would go on to be quoted, I cringe when I admit that I've been suicidal. I've had mental problems, but why shouldn't I? Jones said in 1980. She also would say, I hope we can re-educate the world to see that there's no more need for stigma in mental illness than there is for cancer. At the time, she also divulged that she was a patient of psychotherapy since she was at the age of 24. So we want to talk about that, not only because that's really impactful for her career and her life, but also an important thing to mention and uh, just raise awareness of. Yeah, I think it's especially important because she was this young actress and she would advocate later in life for mental health and Also, her career is often overlooked simply because she was married to David Oselznik, you know, at some point in her life, which is just very sad to think that this beautiful woman who won an Oscar at such a young age would only be remembered because of her marriage to to David Selznick, which is really unfair. So I just want to give Jennifer Jones that due. And also, uh, as we kind of mentioned before, Ingrid Bergman was not nominated for Casablanca this year, but she was nominated for Whom the Bells Told, for Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, even though, like, as I said, like she gave like a really good performance in Casablanca. It was nothing that I'm advocating that she should have won for uh, an Oscar for. So um, so praise to all the beautiful actresses from 1943 who were nominated. But moving on to Best Actor, that went to Paul Lucas for Watch on the Rhine as Kurt Muller. Uh, Lucas was a Hungarian actor. Uh, this was his first and only Oscar nomination and win. And, and he was the first Golden Globe Award winner for Best Actor. Uh, he would also appear in such films like the melodrama Rockabye, uh, Grumpy, and Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. And Watching the Rhine also starred Betty Davis, and Lucas played a German-born anti-fascist. So we kind of see more of that World War II themes and, and films being honored again in, in consecutive years. Best Director goes to Michael Curtiz for Casablanca. So I think we've talked a lot about him. We can, I don't know if you've seen any of the films by the other directors here. If you wanted to, to speak out on that or have anything else you want to say about him directing Casablanca? No, I, I just think Michael Curtiz's direction Casablanca is so good. There are some really funny stories. Um, there was a story, you know, because he had a thick Hungarian accent. John, do you want to tell this story? I think no, no, no. You, got you want me to do it? Okay. 
So he, you know, he had a thick accent. He had to do a lot of pantomimes on set. And, but there's also a lot of miscommunication. So he once told a set decorator for the ending scene of Casablanca, he wanted more poodles on the ground. So the set decorator got a poodle and he would then go on to say poodles of water. <laughs> so he wanted puddles of water on the ground, but he was just so well, you know, detail oriented. He's not really talked about as like these great, you know, directors, but he really should get his due and really should be talked about more. Cause he's certainly fantastic. He's very revered by, you know, Steven Spielberg, by George Lucas's, by many of our favorite directors. They love him and his work. So, uh, Thank you, Michael Curtis, for uh, this wonderful film and for your wonderful dedicated work to the landscape of cinema. Yeah, I think that's not only an hilarious story, it's really goofy and funny, but it also points out to how detail-oriented he was. And I don't think there's many directors that you know are looking at a frame and see the different aspects from set design to the actor and the costumes um, and making sure everything's proper for camera and sound. And then you look at a frame and you're like, you know what? I need more puzzles. <laughs> like this will make the film better. This is what's going to make the shot look better. And I think that's just shows his level of detail and how much Casablanca is really made by that level. Of detail. Yeah. It certainly seemed like that he was an auteur director and that he truly appreciated the art of filmmaking and using it, you know, the blank ca- canvas of it and doing what he can with it, which is why I think you get such great lighting design, why the costumes are so good, why the shots are constantly moving there it just it's involved in the process of cinema and and making a film and it's very well done and now for the outstanding motion picture category the nominees are watch on the rhine the song of bernadette the oxbow incident the more the merrier madam curry in which we serve the human comedy heaven can wait for whom the bell tolls and our winner of the 1943 Academy Award for Best Picture is Casablanca to Hal B. Wallace for Warner Brothers Pictures. Uh, A quick little note about this. So when this film won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Jack L. Warner was actually the first one to accept the award, uh, being the film's actual producer, Hal B. Wallace, who was really pissed off by this. And he took this as a slight, and he never forgave Warner. Award for the most outstanding motion picture of the year, 1943, Casablanca Warner. Casablanca won the award, fellas and girls. Who's going to accept it? Casablanca is not limited to this single achievement. For another of their pictures, Watching the Rhine was also nominated for this award. Yes. Okay. Who's going to accept the award? For cash? Huh? Oh. Huh? Oh, Jack Warner, certainly. Jack Warner, my boss, my God, what I went through. Thank you, Wallace. Uh, Say a few words? Yeah, I would have. I wonder as a studio, he left afterwards uh, this incident. So he was kind of like, fuck you guys. This is I'm the one that made this film, even though it's Warner Brothers' name on it. I made this and he felt disrespected and he ultimately left because Jack Warner just had to get that award himself. I also found it interesting and correct me if I'm wrong or if you remember from any of the Warner Brothers films that we've seen so far that in the opening title when we see the Warner Brothers logo, huge lettering, it covers up in fact part of the Warner Brothers logo saying that it's a Jack Warner production that he produced the film essentially. 
even though he's just yeah. an executive producer, he basically has his name on the film because it's Warner Brothers. And I don't think I've seen that yet. Maybe I missed it previously, but I think it was jarring. I, I, I want to say for All Quiet on the Western Front for Carl Lamel, I feel like his name Might was on there. I think his name was pretty prominent, but I forget. But yeah. Um, and also one quick thing that we didn't talk about was that even though Warner Brothers was very... Like, let's make all these, you know, propaganda war films and fuck the Nazis and do, do all that. How do you explain then the life of Emil Zola, which doesn't do anything against Nazism and fascism and just completely disregards that? I would love to hear that from Warner Brothers perspective. But when America wasn't being bombed, so I think <laughs> yeah. they were like, mm, we don't need to yeah, upset we don't care. anybody. Yeah, yeah, we don't care about the Nazis now, but we will care because they attacked <laughs> us type of thing, which I sort of get, but also a little suspect. But before we give our ratings and all the other fun stuff about um, if Casablanca is worthy of that award, let's give some stats. So Casablanca currently holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. The average rating of that is a 9.41. And actually the top critics give it a 100% fresh rating with an average rating of 9.4. Audiences give it a 95% with an average rating of 4.57 out of 5. And IMDb, it has an 8.5. And actually, right now, out of the only, out of the 16 films that won Best Pictures, the only one that's rated on, a Medi- on Metacritic, actually, with uh, 100. Um, it won three total Oscars out of eight nominations, which is f- pretty low for such a great movie. I actually thought it should have won for at least cinematography or maybe set design. Okay, John, so what do you give Casablanca? I gave Casablanca in 88. And for reference, an 88 is my second highest score. I'm at my highest scored film right now. Comparing them all together is Gone with the Wind at a 90. And then other than that, we have How Green Was My Valley at 85, All Quiet on the Western at 85, and uh, It Happened One Night at 85. I so, would hate to be your student. <laughs> so very, <laughs> very close. And I'm assuming you're saying that from how harsh my grading is. Well, versus like mine where I'm so like just forgiving and like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. So tell me yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah, what I'll, your score is. Yeah. I should tell you guys. So my score is a 97, which is the highest out of any film so far. Um, I think All Quiet on the Western Front had a 96 and then It Happened One Night was a 95. So they're all for me in that same range. But why a 97? Why such a high score? Well, as I said before, I kicked off the whole podcast by saying I only had two issues with this film and it was one little line that I'm just like refusing to even understand the meaning of it because I'm like, it's word badly worded, which I'm not going to take away that many points for. And then the flashback sequence I thought was unnecessary, but it's good. It, it still works. But I think for just the pacing of where the film was and how it was going, it wasn't like it, you just didn't need it to accomplish the film ultimately at the end. So it's like, it's good. It's not necessary, but it still works. So not many points get taken off for me. And that's why I gave it a 97. And it seems to be across the board with all the other, uh, you know, IMDb, Ron Tomatoes, and audiences thing seems to kind of ring true and stay firm with everything else. So, okay. Okay. So you com- you're you comparing it to other scores, which is fair. It's, that's fair. But for me, I'm comparing it to other films, what I enjoyed more, what I think is like a, a, a better complete film. And, and maybe this changes for me over time, but... Where I ran into it, I was considering giving like a 90, um, which is right along with my high score at Gone with the Wind, but I was kind of struggling. I feel like I, I like the characters more in Gone with the Wind. I kind of like the way the story went. It's not really fair because it's like a movie that's over, over twice as long as Casablanca is. 
Um, and for me, the Casablanca, like the flashback scene, I think it only hurts the film more than it helps. And um, at times, I think they're there's it they're saying more than they need to. I think in the script, um, but I really don't have much bad things to say about the film. It's my second highest scored. I think it's amazing. I think as we go along. Maybe I break over that 90. I don't know. We'll see. Stay tuned. Keep I, listening. I kind of hope so. But uh, but as of right now, our average ratings for the 16 movies that have won Best Picture, John is at a 68 and I am a 74.4. Still low because of the Broadway melody and, uh, and some other unfortunate films. But, John, let's answer that age-old question. Is Casablanca worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1943? Yes 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 here's looking at you kid because yes uh yeah so this film is pretty it's fantastic um it is the it is one of the films that any cinephile should have in their back pocket and in their back pocket they should know about it they should know how it works they should know the history of it all the themes how it ends the lines the blah 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 they should just know Casablanca it's a classic film it's one of the only, as I, as we said at the beginning of this whole episode, it's one of the only classic Hollywood films to win Best Picture. It is extremely iconic, and uh, and I think that's pretty much it. Is there any last-minute things we should add about Casablanca? All I got to say is here's to looking at you, Ben. <laughs> here's to looking at you, John. So thank you for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you on that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Sam, I thought I told you never to play Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast on Twitter, at WorthyPod, and on Facebook, at WorthyPodcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.